It's podcasting time. Welcome to Just Another Jerk, the podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Isaacson. And I just want to tell you off the bat that this is not going to be a happy episode at all. Uh, It has to do with when I'm recording this, because I'm recording this on March 10th, which means tomorrow is March 11th, which is a big day here in Japan, but not for good reasons. So it's been nine years since the big one. And it's one of those things that's unavoidable when you live in Japan. I'm talking, of course, about earthquakes. And when I say the big one, I mean the big earthquake, the nine point whatever earthquake in 2011 that killed over 18,000 people between the earthquake and the tsunami. And then a handful, not a lot, but a handful from the nuclear disaster that followed. Now, like I say, when you live in Japan, you know there's going to be another big earthquake coming, probably not too long. You just don't know how big it will be, and you don't know where it'll be. Now, of course, one of the things that people learn about Japan, in particular, well, not just Japan, but the whole Pacific Rim, is it's the Ring of Fire. And Japan is really one of the more active parts of the Ring of Fire, I think, with Indonesia. Lots of earthquakes, lots of volcanoes. Those are kind of the, that's what you get with Japan. You know, and I always knew about earthquakes in Japan. It was obviously some, like I say, you learn about the Ring of Fire, you know, there's a lot of plate tectonics, there's a lot of movement going on over here, which causes the volcanoes. And then, of course, there's all the earthquakes with the plate movement as well. And I remember, you know, learning, not learning, hearing about the the Hanshin earthquake of 1995. I think a lot of Americans maybe noticed the Kobe earthquake um, was the big one. It struck not directly under Kobe, but it was an island off the coast of Kobe, which is not a huge city, but a big city kind of over in western um, Japan, not far from Osaka and Kyoto, that general area. And that was a big earthquake in 1995, so I was in junior high school at the time. And in that one, you know, there were over 6,000 people dead. And that's a lot of people in a country like Japan, especially, that has really good earthquake engineering. You know, buildings are designed to withstand major earthquakes because of Japan's history. So yeah, 6,000 dead in Japan. That that's a that's a lot of news. That's that's major world news. So I remember that. You know, I also learned about the great Kanto earthquake in my history class. So Kanto is the region where Tokyo is in Japan. It's one of the largest flat plains in the country, which is why the Tokyo area is as big as it is. Um, and there was a major major earthquake in that region in 1923. Uh, The magnitude was something around an eight. So that's a big, big earthquake. It's still an order of magnitude less than the 2011 earthquake, but still eight, that's a huge earthquake. And it struck a very large metropolitan area because even by 1923, Tokyo was a big, big city. And in that earthquake, and the subsequent fires, over 140,000 people died. So Tokyo was almost completely leveled. And a big part of that it was, a big part of that was that the earthquake happened right before noon. So you have 
lots of people cooking lunch. And in 1923, that means they're cooking over open fires. And uh, Tokyo at that point was largely constructed out of wood. Japan is not terribly uh, well off when it comes to natural resources. There's not a lot of stone. You can't, it's hard to make bricks. There's not clay for that. The majority of construction, especially traditional construction, is made entirely out of wood. And so you have this combination. You have right before lunchtime, so lots of open fires. You have wooden houses, wooden buildings. Big earthquake shakes everything up. And before you know it, the entire city's on fire. And like I say, 140, over 140,000 people died in that. That's I don't know if that number includes the ethnic Koreans who were massacred in the ensuing uh, period of martial law. And that's an issue that's way too big to tackle in this at this moment in this podcast. Maybe I can talk about kind of uh, the historical relationships between Korea and Japan. But let's just say that Japan does not have a very good track record of protecting and looking after its ethnic minorities in here in the country. Um, I mean, but what country does? Uh, Japan is certainly no exception to that rule. Um, but yeah, in, in Japan, traditionally, there's been a ethnic Korean population um, that's faced a lot of discrimination. And unfortunately, in the aftermath of the 1923 uh, Kanto earthquake, there were some massacres of Koreans. Um, not something you hear a lot about, certainly not in Japan, probably not really anywhere, um, but something that you know shouldn't be forgotten. So, like I said, Tokyo almost completely leveled uh, by that, and it was rebuilt again after uh, World War II. So in the span of about 30 years, 30, 40 years, Tokyo was rebuilt twice, almost from the ground up, which is a big reason why Tokyo was in the 80s and 90s such a modern city, one of the most modern cities in the world, because it had been completely rebuilt twice in the 20th century. Now, that's kind of all the historical stuff and whatnot. But so I come to Japan in, like say, 2004. And I don't remember the first earthquake I felt um, because earthquakes in Japan, small earthquakes happen literally every day. You can go to the, so in Japan, the uh, I usually use the Yahoo weather. And one of the uh, one of the, the categories on the on the weather homepage is earthquakes. So you can look up and see where the latest earthquake was, how big it was, lottie, lottie, lottie. Um, and I don't remember, and what was I going to say with that? Oh, that, no, I don't remember. But yeah, I, I don't remember, but yeah, oh yeah, so literally you can go every day to the Yahoo and you can see, okay, there's an earthquake here, an earthquake there. I don't remember the first earthquake I actually felt. Um, but I do remember my feeling the first time I felt an earthquake because it was very disconcerting for me, someone who primarily grew up in the Midwestern U.S., mostly in Illinois, in the Chicago area. There's not a lot of earthquakes in Illinois. I remember a few years back, I don't remember at this point, it's probably been quite a few years back, 
there was an earthquake in Illinois and it was huge news. Like their earthquake in Illinois was a tiny, tiny earthquake, you know, just a little shaking, nothing, you know, probably nothing even fell off of, off of a bookshelf or anything. But yeah, earthquakes in Illinois, it's not something you, you associate. So the first time I felt an earthquake, I don't remember when it was, but I remember my feelings like, oh, this is an earthquake. Oh, okay. The first big quake I experienced, I do remember. Uh, and this was in late October of 2004. So I'd been in Japan for about three months, not quite three months at this point. And I remember because that it was a Saturday. Was Saturday? Saturday. It was a weekend. It was, it was Saturday. It definitely was Saturday because it was my the junior high school I was working at as an ALT. They had just had their sports day. And in Japan, elementary school, junior high school, I think even in high school, Sports day is a big event. They divide up into teams and lots of competitions and things. It's a big deal. And it was that day. And after it, very often, the faculty will go and have an enkai, which is kind of a, a, a party. Uh, and so we went to an izakaya, which is a Japanese-style pub. Uh, we went to an izakaya, which is kind of the standard, that's the standard place you go for an enkai, for a, an after-work after after event uh, kind of party. And so, like I say, we went to the, the, uh, to the Enkai, and it was about, it was just before 6 p.m., and there was a big earthquake in Niigata. Now, I lived in Akita. Niigata is two prefectures away, so it wasn't right next to it, next to where I was, but it wasn't far either. Um, so prefectures, to give you an idea, prefectures in Japan, they are... Small, much smaller than U.S. states. Um, they're, yeah, they're, for example, Akita from north to south is probably, you can drive the entire distance in on the expressway at 100 kilometers an hour in a couple hours. So it's not a huge area. It's maybe 200 kilometers north to south. And so probably from where I was to two prefectures over, it was a couple hundred kilometers. So not like I say, not right next door, but not far either. And it was a big earthquake. It was a big enough that we felt it. And very quickly, all the the news channels went to report on this because it was, like I say, it was a big earthquake. Um, and that was the first big earthquake I remember. And I did a quick wiki, Wikipedia search just to kind of see how many big earthquakes have I experienced in Japan? And obviously Wikipedia, grain of salt, all that, la 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 Wikipedia has a list of all the major earthquakes, whatever, in Japan. I think they're kind of their cutoff point for this kind of list is about a seven on the magnitude scale. Um, just to let you know, the Richter scale, if you're still using that, you're old fashioned. It's now the magnet, moment magnitude scale. Um, Japan, we use a combination of moment magnitude and the Shindo scale. So moment magnitude measures the uh, intensity, the, the energy at the at the epicenter of the earthquake, I believe. And the Shindo scale, the Japanese scale, measures the surface movement. So moment magnitude will be the same no matter where you're looking at the earthquake from. The Shindo scale measures the relative movement where you are 
So at the epicenter of an earthquake, you'll have a much higher Shindo scale. And as you get further and further away, it will go down in number. Um, quick digression. So, so yeah, so uh, the, the Wikipedia page for major earthquakes in Japan, since I have been in Japan, it has 27 earthquakes in my 16 years. So we've had 27 major earthquakes. And looking back, I don't even remember the majority of these. That's just how frequent and common these big earthquakes are in Japan. Now, in all fairness, of those 27, six of them are related to the big one, the 2011 nine point whatever. It depends on which version of whose measurements you're looking at, but it's, it's nine point something. Maybe I think eight, somewhere between 8.9 and 9.9.1. Sorry, looking here now, 8.4 and 9.1, somewhere between those two numbers. So it's a big, big freaking earthquake. And there are two major foreshocks and a whole bunch of major aftershocks. And according to Wikipedia, the uh, earthquake on March 11, 2001, uh, 2011, there were over 60 aftershocks with a magnitude of 6.0 or higher, and three aftershocks with a magnitude 7.0 or higher, and two foreshocks, uh, two major foreshocks, one at 7.3 and one at 6.4, 6.8. So it's a major, major, major earthquake. Um, so like I say, six of those 27 are related to the big earthquake. So what happened in that big earthquake? I can, I'll, let me tell you my personal experience because we'll start, we'll start there. So like I say, it was March 11th, 2011. Um, at that time, I was living in the, I was living just outside of Sapporo. I was living in Eniwa, which is a suburb of, of Sapporo. And it was 2.46 in the afternoon. So I'm at work. I was working at a professional school at Simmongakko, the Japanese term for it, professional school, vocational school, what you like, whatever you like to call it. And 2.46, March. At that point, we don't have classes. So we don't have, they're not, they're basically no students on campus. It was mostly just teachers. Um, we were basically on, on spring break for classes, but not for teachers, if that makes sense. So the teachers were all in the office, and 2.46 p.m., that's when the big earthquake strikes. And even in Eniwa, so I say I'm in, in the Hokkaido, uh, Sapporo area, we are over 500 kilometers away. That's over 300 miles. And we were still shaking enough that we had to leave our building. We had to go outside. We went outside three times that day just because the worries of the of the quake and the aftershock, would that cause damage inside the building? This is over 500 kilometers away from the epicenter. After the first, after the major quake, obviously no one got any work done at all. There was just no one could, you, you can't focus after that because you, you realize, okay, this was a, we felt it this big, but it was 500 kilometers away. Because everyone's phones give you, they ping, ping, ping. They tell you, okay, earthquake, earthquake coming. Earthquake hit. Here's the information. And 
we find, okay, this was down 500 kilometers away. What's happening? So everyone pulls up the news on their computers. They pull up all the news sites that have streaming, streaming the news videos. And that's when the images start coming in. And we see, you know, it's the tsunami. And the tsunami is just unreal. Now, usually earthquakes, a lot of earthquakes cause tsunamis. Most tsunamis are very, very small. They're 10 centimeters, 20 centimeters, you know, less than one foot. Not enough to actually do damage. Our image of a tsunami is this big, massive, you know, wave that comes and destroys everything. Most tsunamis are not that. This one was. This one was that. And there are just images that I think everyone in Japan, anyone who was here at that time, that we just will not forget of this big, black wall of water just pouring over break, you know, the breakwaters, pouring over seawalls onto the highways that, 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 that skirt the coast and just washing everything away. Um, one of the other images that a lot of people remember is the Sendai airport. You know, that's my airport now. I live in Sendai. We live now. We didn't live here then, but we live here now. But, and I, I've been to the airport. It's a very lovely airport. They've obviously redone it since, you know, 2011. But the images of the tsunami flooding the airport grounds, just moving planes, watching people trying to drive their cars in front of the tsunami and not making it. It was just unreal to watch. And, you know, I, I recently I watched a mobile video, mobile phone video that someone in, inside Sendai Airport had taken at the time. Uh, one of, recently, one of the news channels kind of as a reminder to people, hey, keep your vigilance. Remember what happened. Don't, you know, don't, don't become complacent with earthquake safety. And somewhat, so they had re-released this video, this mobile phone video on their YouTube channel. And that, watching that again, just watching the, the, the video from inside the, the airport, the shaking is so violent and goes on for so long. You know, if you have experienced earthquakes, they've probably been under a minute in most cases. This one, the video lasts, I think, three or four minutes. The, you know, the, the, the full reported earthquake measured by geologists and, and whatnot, six minutes. Six minutes of shaking, just in. It just it defies imagination. It's hard to explain what that what that was like, and I wasn't even here in the center of it. I was 500 kilometers away, and it still was. It was a long earthquake. It was indescribable, and I remember going home after after this earthquake, after this major event that obviously is is unfolding as as I was you know walking home. Or maybe probably riding my bike home that day, but you know, on my way home, and it was just, you know, you'd go home, you turn on the news, and just the the images as the tsunami was receding were just unreal. You know, there are large fishing boats on top of two and three story buildings. Entire communities 
are just gone. You know, there's uh, there there's a down here in Sendai, down by the coast. Uh, there is a there was I should say there was a little community with it. So within Sendai City, a neighborhood called Arahama. Arahama's gone. There's nothing left. The only thing that's still standing is the school, the elementary school, um, where a lot of people took refuge. They went in, They went to Arahama's elementary school, went up on, this, on the roof, and that was kind of where um, a lot of people waited for rescue because the tsunami took a long time for it to completely recede. So people were stuck on top of on top of the elementary school for quite a while. I don't I don't remember how long it was, but it was not immediately. You know, the, the tsunami started receding, but it didn't completely go back out for a long time because the tsunami, I think, made it about four kilometers inland. It was partially stopped by uh, the expressway. The, there's an expressway that kind of runs along the coast um, about four or five kilometers inland here in Sendai. And that kind of put an end to the, the advance of the tsunami. So it would have gone further, probably not a lot further without the expressway, but it would have gone even further. Um, you know, and uh, we recently, my family, we went to, there's a park, a, a very lovely park down on the coast. And the park itself is elevated about seven, eight meters from the surrounding air, the surrounding ground. And I was reading, they have some information about what happened in that area. At the during the tsunami, and there's a there's a kind of a a hill, a lookout hill slash uh, evacuation hill on top, like that's about 15 meters high. And they were saying that the tsunami actually, when it first hit, did actually reach the top of that evacuation hill, but then the area around the this park, say seven meters elevated, was completely flooded. So the park was became an island. All the trees that were along there's a canal. All the trees were gone. And like I say, Arahama, that community that's just a, like about a kilometer north of that park, is there's nothing. You can walk around that that district and see all the the foundations of the houses. There's one or two I, like storage buildings or something that's still standing, but they're completely stripped of everything. So it's just, this. these are the images we're starting to see after, you know, as I'm going home. And Japan, life was just, it was surreal for a long time after this event, you know, and and the only thing I could compare it to was the terror attacks in the U.S., the 9-11 terror attacks in the U.S. Now, obviously, there's a lot of differences. 9-11, man-made disaster, you know, it's, it's some sort of asymmetrical warfare versus a tsunami earthquake tsunami then okay we could say the 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 nuclear disaster is man-made but the majority of the disaster here in japan was completely just nature just completely and utterly destroying anything that man could, could try to make and watching tv was so surreal at that time too obviously the it was wall-to-wall news it was just everything was what's going on in Tohoku and to a certain extent going on Tokyo because everything's got to be about Tokyo in Japan. Japan's very Tokyo centric. And sure, Tokyo did have a lot of damage um, because the earthquake did shake Tokyo pretty well, but nothing like up here in Tohoku, obviously. 
And yeah, the, so obviously the news, it was wall-to-wall news. There, was, there were no regular TV programs on. There was just news, and all the news was the earthquake and the tsunami and the, and the nuclear reactor in Fukushima and what was going on there. But then there was also the commercial breaks because they still had you know these this, the commercial break times, but pretty much every single manufacturer, every single advertiser pulled their their uh, their commercials off the air. Like this, it didn't feel right to be advertising, trying to sell things at this time. And that, I think that makes sense. I understand that. And but the the, the TV network still had this this ad time to fill. So all of the commercials were from AC Japan, which is the Japan Ad Council, AC Ad Council. And there were all these things about being nice to your to each other and and you know giving greetings and there was one that everyone in Japan who was here at the time watching TV Everyone remembers, po, 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 po. there's this little animated characters, you know, going through all these different greetings and things with these weird little animated animals. And it was it was just constant because the TV, they, they didn't have anything else to put on during the during the ad breaks. So it was just ad council ads over and over and over again. And it was so strange. And like I say, Hokkaido. 500 kilometers away, a long way away. People were still panic buying. Try to go buy rice at that time. It was really hard in the week or two after. Toilet paper. Those kind of things were really hard to buy, even in, like I say, 500 miles away, sorry, 500 kilometers away, 300 miles away, Sapporo. It was really hard to get things like rice, toilet paper, those kind of things. So people were just panic buying, even in Sapporo. And I'm sure here in Sendai, in the Miyagi, Iwate, Fukushima, I'm sure it was even stranger because there was no electricity for a long time. Everything, everything was just wiped out. And so there was almost, you know, people were cut off from watching TV more or less. I'm sure a lot of people were listening to radio to get as much news as they could, you know, on, on little battery-powered radios, but, you know, turn on your car stereo or whatever to listen to the news. But, yeah, there was just, I'm sure it must have been surreal to be here at that time, you know. And most of the mobile carriers, the data networks, were completely jammed. There was no way to really get contact over the, you know, email, try to call people here. It was Im- nearly impossible. And so... Kind of an outgrowth of this, actually, kind of a, it's obviously not a silver lining. It's just one tiny little positive kernel that kind of grew out of this is that uh, Line. So Line is a messaging app that everyone in Japan uses to communicate. And it grew out of this disaster, actually. It's a really convenient messaging app because it, it like Facebook Messenger, it operates over the uh, Internet. So you don't have to be using your you don't have to be using the same as your like the phone part of your yourself when you have to use the data part of your phone and it it, it can work better in because it just needs to get, find any access to the internet and then you can send messages out that way and the company that created Line created it for internal use because all of Japan's uh, mobile mobile carriers were so jammed that it was more efficient to use the the uh, computer the the internet side of communication so they were using that 
to communicate with each other. And eventually they re- it was successful enough that they released it to the public. And so that's that came out of the um, out of the big earthquake disaster. So, like I said, there's so uh, so we see all these images of towns being completely washed away, and then the whole Fukushima um, nuclear disaster starts unfolding, and that goes on for a long time, and and it's still to this day is going on because they're trying to figure out what to do with all of the coolant, the the cooling water that they've been using. They have thousands, like hundreds of thousands of like just tons and tons and tons, literal tons of this water that they're trying to figure out what to do with. And so that's still, I obviously still, I'm going to keep going on for a long time until they can figure out what to fully do with Fukushima. So it was a strange time to be in Japan. And, and so, and there's, I, I want to recommend a book if any of you are interested in kind of reading about one, um, just kind of a, a, a small slice of what happened during the tsunami. Um, there's a book by uh, Richard Lloyd Perry. He is the Asia editor for the Times of London. Um, and he wrote a book called Ghosts of the Tsunami. And it is an absolutely terrifying, just gut-wrenching account of Okawa Elementary School, which is an, it was a small school a uh, small elementary school up the coast in Miyagi. So from where from where I live now, about 80 kilometers. Um, if you just go up the coast, it's it's getting to the very rugged part of the Tohoku coast. Where Sendai is is pretty nice and flat, but going up the coast, it gets much more rugged and almost almost like has fjords. Um, but Okawa Elementary School is up in that part of Miyagi, and there were 108 students at this school, elementary school, so grades one through six, 108 students, so a pretty small school. Of those 108, 70 of the children died. And of the 13 teachers and staff, nine of them died in the tsunami. And it was entirely avoidable. Um, and the city, the city that uh, in charge of that elementary school, that um, Board of Education were found to be responsible for the deaths of the children, and um, in a court, in the court of law, the courts have said, "Nope, Ishinomaki, that's the city. You must pay compensation to these families um, through gross neg- gross negligence and just incompetence." And it's it's a really really good book, but it is not a book to be read unless you are absolutely ready to have your your gut just absolutely ripped and just oh it's it's like even just thinking about it right now I'm, I'm i'm having a hard time it's a horrible book but it's also a really good book i mean the story is horrible just what happened that day is absolutely horrible um but like i say if you really want to know just the small slice of what happened ghost of the tsunami by richard lloyd perry i highly recommend it um like I say, not not a not a not a not a beach read. This should be read when you're well prepared to be sad. Um, so yeah, and so that yeah that was my experience with this this absolute incomprehensible, just absolutely incomprehensible disaster that happened. Um, and I know other people have 
different experiences. Other people have much more direct experiences with it. But, you know, as someone who Tohoku, so the north, the northeast of Japan is where the earthquake happened. Akita is part of Tohoku. So Akita is kind of like my second hometown. And so just what happened just absolutely, I don't know. There's just something about it that I have this tenuous but personal connection to it. And so like I said, this is just my experience. I'm sure everyone's experience is different and everyone will have a different story. But yeah, that's my story about it. You know, and since then, there have been dozens of other quakes and some of them also big and major quakes that caused lots of death and lots of damage. You know, nothing obviously that big, but, you know, there have been earthquakes that have killed dozens of people. You know, a couple years ago, yeah, I think 2018, my wife and daughter were, they were at her, visiting her parents, my wife's parents in Hokkaido. And there was a big earthquake that hit Hokkaido. You know, everyone in my family was fine. Um, 41 people, unfortunately, I think 41 people died in that earthquake. Uh, say my family, everyone was fine, but they, were, they weren't really, again, not right next to it, but they were close enough that, yeah, it was, they felt a lot of shaking and they lost power for a couple of days. And so we, I, you know, I was keeping in, con- in contact with them, making sure everyone was okay, but we had to be careful. Don't use too much, you know, of your cell phone battery. Um, just save it for emergencies. And but everyone was fine. But yeah, there there are always going to be big earthquakes. And so, when will the next one hit? Where will it be? You know, you just you don't know. It's just something you have to keep in mind when you live here in Japan. You know, and I suppose. It's kind of like living with tornadoes in a lot of the U.S. You know, I grew up in, like say, a lot lot of my childhood was spent in Illinois. And tornadoes were, that's a thing that you worry about. You know, summer comes around, sky turns weird colors, get in the basement. You know, my mother's hometown of Nashville, Tennessee is dealing with tornado cleanup right now. So you never know. So, like I say, I guess tornadoes in the U.S. and earthquakes here in japan so i i you know i hate to end on such a somber note for y'all but it's a somber day here uh in japan so i'll leave you there um if you do have questions or comments you can always reach me at just another jerk podcast at gmail.com so that's all, all one word just another jerk podcast at gmail.com And hopefully I'll be back with something a little more lighthearted next time.